1: Bring in show music, please.
0: This is Squawk Pod, and I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. On today's episode, drama at the debt ceiling, awaiting a compromise in Congress so the US can pay its bills. PIMCO's head of public policy, Libby Cantrell.
2: The majority of Republicans know that when push comes to shove, they will have to raise the debt ceiling somehow. Now, of course, they want to get some concessions along the way.
0: Activist investor Elliott Management takes a stake in Salesforce, and a big stake could mean big changes are ahead.
1: That's a big cut if you think that's what what they're talking about So you think Elliott
3: wants even more than the 10% they're already talking about?
1: Oh yeah
0: plus the tech sector's layoffs. All players, except one, have announced major, major cuts. Tech watcher Gene Munster warns there are a lot more coming.
4: There's still another 15 to 20% of headcount reductions for these big tech companies in the next three to six months.
0: It is Monday, January 23rd, 2023. The anchors are back home from the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. You
1: didn't uh, ski over this year, did you? Sadly, I never hit the skis. I hit a lot of meetings, but I never hit the skis.
0: And Squawk Pod in New York begins right now.
1: Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue, please.
3: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the Nasdaq Market Site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And boy, it's good to be back home, right, guys.
5: <laughs> it, it is. It Let's. Is. Uh, I'm. Warm. We had some headwinds. Come not say. not on the show. The week that head- was. The yeah. week yeah. that he, was. What did we take away back. from the
3: week? Oh, that it's good to be back home.
5: We, did we ever get on that time zone? <laughs> Six hours is because. Uh, so we got up at 11.30, or on No, it? I got up
3: at 10.30 p.m. p.m. New York time to come home.
5: Right, and then we're up for 24
3: yeah, hours. But you know what? We did have a great slew of guests.
5: We did. Maybe yep.
3: learned a lot, saw deep into what they were thinking. Um, but we, I don't know what the key takeaway is, or we, if you think we, it's counting this year or really it, on the
5: money. If it's 15 degrees, we can still do it. 13. 13 outside. Who's counting? And, and survive. Yeah. Um, uh, the the people that are there, I I got a little Stockholmed. I I like think I it was a good thing. I, I got. We're
3: gonna start calling you Davos.
5: Yeah, call me. Well, I'll yeah. never be Davos, man. I'll ne- I can be Davos Davos boy, at, okay. at at the most.
3: Okay, we'll give you that.
5: Salesforce multiple reports this morning are that Elliott Management has taken a multi billion dollar stake in the company. Details of the campaign are unknown, uh, but history shows that Elliott often seeks board representation, pushes companies. Uh, pushes for companies to make operational improvements. Uh, this is after Salesforce earlier this month said it was laying off 10% uh, of its global workforce. It's not a, not a. Uh, it looks like kind of a double diamond slope, doesn't it, over in Davos. Uh,
1: Andrew, did you you didn't uh, ski over this year, did you? Or, or did you, did you get, you get up there? Sadly, I never hit the skis. Nope. A lot of the meetings, I hit a lot of meetings, but I never hit the skis. Mm-hmm. Let's see we had meetings
5: Some after parties. the show right
1: does that count i hit
5: those hmm? <laughs> doesn't count yeah <Joe>. doesn't, <laughs> doesn't count. Count. okay oh you mean our did, did you go you, did you go to the big Salesforce party andrew or or no i did not i'm not invited to that but i was wondering whether you were you
1: know my understanding of the way davos works yeah. is that it's a it's a it's a off the record Chatham House Rules Arrangement. Oh, so, okay. So
5: I can't even know, mention the
1: party. What, what, stays in, what stays in Davos is supposed to, uh, maybe, but maybe not. A see, lot that's of why that people don't like Davos. But, but see, I didn't go.
5: I, I didn't agree to that, and I didn't go. And I happen to know that, I don't know, what would you think of Chrissy Hind as a musical? Not quite Sting, is it? So he's cutting back a little on, on spending, I guess, right? I, like, I love the pretenders. I, I do, but... Uh, not quite. Uh, maybe from previous years. Maybe you know, raining it a little in a little bit as, with all the layoffs and stuff.
1: I don't know. I think you you know, people make their choices around around what looks good or what looks bad, and uh, you know, Microsoft's looking worse with Sting, right? So there.
3: <laughs> all right. Yeah, this is why people don't like Davos. So
5: what, you tell me, what does Elliot want, Elliot? He wants the wants, uh, phone home? What does Elliott want from, from no, Salesforce? No, Elliott
1: yeah. wants them to cut back. And look, the truth is that this is a company pre-pandemic. So what are we at? 71,000. We talked about this, I think, two weeks ago before they went after him. They're at around 71,000 employees today. They had about 80,000 employees before, um, before this last cut. Pre-pandemic, if you believe their business is, is like it was pre-pandemic, and I would say it's better than that, but let's just say that's where you want to think it had 50,000 employees. So that's that's a big cut if you think that's what what they're talking about. So you think Elliot here.
3: wants even more than the 10% they're already talking about?
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah, no question. I mean, part of the whole argument is that, that 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 this is a company, I mean, arguably, and I'm not sure I agree with it, but the argument is that this is a bloated this has become a bloated company. I don't know if you believe that. We can agree, disagree, debate that point, but I think that's that's the, the view that Elliot has, at least right now.
5: So the whole week, all they want, Klaus Schwab and company, all they want is publicity and for it to get out, here's what we're talking about, here's what we're doing, here's how we're fixing this, here's how blah, blah, blah. But then now you're telling me it's all supposed to be off the record? Is that, how, are you sure? I, I need to, I, you Send me the, the actual guidelines. I didn't realize that. I apologize. I didn't, uh, so no other, uh, no other comments? Who
1: was there? Can't really say or any of that stuff. They're all in. Incognito- you know, I, I, let me say this in the best way I can. I, uh, I attended a couple of things for a very short amount of time. So I, I, have, I don't have any great great wisdom to share. The latest National Association for Business Economic Survey, it is out and could be signaling that the Fed's rate hike strategy is working to slow the economy. Economists now expect more businesses to cut jobs and spend less on expansion for the first time. Since the pandemic, the survey also showing that business owners are still concerned that the Fed's decision making could push too hard on the economy and potentially uh, put the U.S. into a recession this year. Now, the Fed's next two day meeting begins. Mark your calendar. January 31st. I think we're back to maybe inflation is
5: moderating. Maybe we don't get a horrible recession. And that would be that would be amazing. Right? I mean,
3: that's what J.P. Morgan is now saying that the odds right. of a recession are much less likely as, you know.
5: But inflation does seem, we'll see what happens with China, uh, obviously. But for, for people that say, you know, you, you can't like rush the pivot, it just seems like a, a, the body language looks like they're at least swiveling a little, doesn't it? I mean, that's a headline in the journal. Fed sets milder, milder uh, course on rate increases. And, and Lao Brainerd, she doesn't speak for everyone, obviously, but suddenly they, they're really interested in the incoming data. And they th- I thought they weren't interested in the incoming data. I thought they were dead set yeah, on getting... Yeah,
1: but Leo Brainerd, I mean, tell me what Jim Bullard thinks, right? He's been he's true. been on the hawkish side of this,
3: right? Bullard doesn't get a vote anymore this year. He's lost his that's vote th- this that's time around. That's actually
1: true. Good point. But, but I, I, my only point is there's a lot of people out there that are right. varying, varying degrees of views on
3: all of this. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. And look, Larry Summers has been really interesting. In Davos, he was speaking a little bit more... Um, Uh, benignly in terms of things, saying that, yeah, maybe we have a much better shot at actually coming out of this uh, without some severe recession. But he also made comments at the CNBC event where he was talking about how, um, look, the one thing you don't want to do is have to come back and fight inflation again. You really have to make sure you snuff it out this time around. It's
5: a pandemic reopening. It's not, I don't, I just don't think it's what they, but there was, we did print a lot of money. Mm -hmm. You see who does have a vote, too. I mean, I guess that's okay. Austin Goolsbee. Yeah, it awesome. Seems like a, yeah. I mean, so, 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 like a squawk regular gets a vote on the Federal Reserve. That's a, to me. That just. I'm not saying we, we lessen his. Uh, you know how serious no, a person. We- Did you see what he said? We had that eight box, and he goes, "Well, there it is. It took five people to replace me on the." <laughs> and I not had no wrong. answer for. I had no answer for that.
3: Tees will be next.
0: Coming up on Squawk Pod, DC's debt ceiling drama. The U.S. has hit its borrowing limit. We're running on extraordinary measures until Congress makes a compromise. Pimco's head of public policy, Libby Cantrell, on what's at stake for the U.S. and for lawmakers.
2: If it really does look like default is a potential, not only will obviously the markets react, but you know, the big donors will also be, you know, reaching out to members. We'll be right back
0: Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Last week, the United States hit its debt limit. We have now officially hit our borrowing cap of 31.4 trillion dollars. This means the U.S. government has run out of money to pay its bills. For now, the Treasury Department is picking up the slack, leaning on what Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has called extraordinary measures to ensure that everyone gets paid. But that slack runs out in the summer. And at that point, if Congress hasn't agreed to raise the debt ceiling, the United States will default on its loans. Now, the U.S. has never defaulted on its debt. And that's mostly because the US has the ultimate confidence of international markets who buy our debt in the form of treasury bonds. The confidence that the United States will not go bankrupt, that the United States will be able to pay off its loans is a cornerstone of the global economy. So even though a default has never actually happened, we have raised the debt ceiling before, actually 78 times since 1960. And the standoff we're in now, well, that has also happened before, notably in 2011 now, like then, we're waiting for Congress to agree on something, whether it's lifting the debt ceiling even higher or setting up a new system. One group of lawmakers is pushing to tie the debt limit to a percentage of national economic output instead of a fixed dollar amount. The hold up this year, as usual, is bipartisanship. As in most negotiations, each party hopes to get a little extra out of the compromise. Here's Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin with the rest of the debt ceiling drama.
5: Lawmakers uh, are working on a plan to avert a debt crisis, a debt ceiling crisis, that is. Joining us now with what's at stake, Libby Cantrill, head of public policy uh, at PIMCO. Any reason to think, Libby, that, that uh, there's going to be some, I mean, the eventual outcome is probably the same, but will there be some different things happening that we haven't seen in the past, in your view, uh, this time around?
2: Yeah, good morning. <laughs> good morning, Joe. Um, yeah, well, what we're telling our clients is that uh, it is really, it is really early. Uh, arguably, too early uh, to be even talking about the chances of default. Here, uh, we are. Um, we, it's important to remember that the markets don't really react to, uh, you know, sort of previous debt ceiling standoffs until sort of days, if you know, maybe weeks before the the so-called X date, that drop deadline. Uh, that dropped a dead deadline. Um, and so the fact that we're now six months out and talking about, you know, sort of chances of default just seems a bit overblown from our perspective. Sure, uh, are House Republicans using this as one of their very few sources of leverage uh, because, of course, they're in the minority. Um, yes, uh, of course. And I think this that should have been to, to, you know, sort of expected. Um, but kind of when push comes to shove, Joe, as you said, we've seen this movie before. We don't think the dynamics are, are very different from sort of the 2021 uh, debt ceiling standoff or the 2015 debt ce- ceiling standoff. And I think really importantly here, Joe, there are lots of similarities. People are Uh, sort of calling out between 2011 and 2023. And we actually don't think that there are a lot of similarities. House Republicans have a much smaller majority than they did back in 2011, only a four-seat majority versus a 24-seat majority. That really decreases their leverage going into these debt ceiling negotiations. And I think really importantly, the politics of austerity have really changed. Uh, You have have to remember back in 2010, after the 2010 election, 63 Republicans, new Republicans, were sent to the House really to rein in spending. That is not the case now. There are only 10 new Republicans coming uh, to to Washington and their mandate wasn't to cut spending. In fact, entitlements still uh, are very popular among voters, particularly as they get older. Libby? um, Yes
5: during the 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 leadership debacle, whatever you want to call it that, that ended with with speaker mccarthy the it probably the republicans that were the 20 holdouts weren't re, didn't really do the overall party any favors probably and you saw the glee and the schadenfreude and the epicaricacy i remembered how to say it the epicaricacy <laughs> of the democrats during that whole thing they were Maybe there was an alcohol, um, although I didn't check for flask. But there was at least popcorn and a lot of enjoyment watching that happen. Now, once again, you're setting up the Republicans as the bad guys here. This is, everybody is. But Andrew made a point earlier. Now, this is the Daily News. and We know the Daily News is like the opposite of the New York Post, kind of like Fox and, and CNN. But uh, you see what that says? It's got Thelma and Louise headed off the cliff, and it doesn't have a, a donkey and a Elephant, it's got an elephant and Uncle Sam. So once again, this is all the Republicans, Democrats are trying to be do the right thing and the fiscal. They love this. Are the are the Republicans dumb enough to get played again? <laughs> so, the, so, are they dumb enough <clears throat> to get played by yeah, and, by the Democrats again and by holding
2: out? Yeah, and just to be just to be, just to be clear, Joe, um, I'm not you know i'm not saying that republicans are necessarily at fault here what i'm saying is that this should be expected that usually a, a party in the out of out of out of power in the white house uses any sort of tool they can to extract concessions or uh, to exert leverage over the party that's in power. And so it shouldn't be surprising that House Republicans are using this as one of their few sources of leverage. That is sort of the point that I I am making Mm. here. Um, But yes, I mean, in terms of kind of the politics here, 2024 is going to be right around the corner uh, from this, you know, so-called X day, different June or, or August or what have you, this politically um, is not going to benefit Republicans. So I think you're right that, um, I, you know, my view and I think lots of other folks who have been observers of these debt ceiling standoffs for years is that cooler heads will prevail. Leader McConnell has already made it clear that he will not let the U.S. default, And of course, he is a really important player here. Uh, and Republicans, I think that the majority of Republicans know that when push comes to shove, they will have to raise the debt ceiling somehow. Now, of course, they want to get some concessions along the way. I think that that's um, l- unlikely to happen. Maybe they get some sort of kind of fig leaf in terms of the establishment of a commission to look at spending. But that sort of seems like the most that they will likely get. But again, this is just, this seems like what's political posturing to be expected is not a market event. From our perspective, that's what we're telling clients. This is not a market event as of now. We take this seriously, uh, but folks should be uh, focused on other things like what the Fed is doing. Hey, Libby, the only thing I'd
3: say is having watched the 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 election for Speaker that just took place. um, I mean, that was pretty unwieldy, pretty different than what we've seen in the past. And I just wonder how much power those people will have over Speaker McCarthy, Um, just in terms of what he had to say okay to and allow in order to go ahead and get elected Speaker. Is is he in a weaker position or are we not looking at that correctly?
2: No, Becky. I think that's, I mean, these are all excellent points that you're making. But I think, again, when sort of push comes to shove, um, this is all about the votes. And are there... 218 votes uh, to to raise the debt ceiling when push comes to shove. Are there 60 votes in the Senate, and will President Biden sign a clean debt ceiling bill into to you know into law? Those are the things that folks should, at the end of the day are the most important. And yes, there are 218 votes, if not more, to raise the debt ceiling. Um, you know if. You know, Speaker McCarthy arguably is probably in a more, you know, weakened position, but also the numbers uh, really just punctuate how weak of a position he would be in, regardless of what happened in terms of the Speaker election. Again, he only has a four seat majority when in 2011, they had a 24 seat majority. I just can't emphasize that enough um, that the math here is not on his side. Uh, And as a result, if, you know, Democrats can, do something called the discharge petition, which has been in the news. It's it's really onerous. It's mechanically, you know, very difficult. But even the potential of doing that, I think, um, is you know, will be an escape valve, uh, you know, in, in in many respects. So, you know, kind of bottom line here: this is not a market event as of now, even though obviously the media is very focused on it.
1: Well, but that, Libby, that's what I was going to say in terms of being either a media event or something else. What is it that would tip it over? Because the expectation is that'll you know it'll go to midnight. And midnight and midnight, you know, it'll, that'll keep happening. But, it, but inevitably, the market is betting that it, that it, gets, it, it gets fixed. So is there a moment, does it actually have to tip over for, for the market to actually feel it or no?
2: I mean, sure, you know, again, maybe the market does get a little bit of wobbly, and uh, that, again, just sort of emphasizes how important to members it is to, to, to raise the debt ceiling. Um, but I think we've all seen this movie before. This is, you know, again, very unlike 2011 when, uh, you know, the last time that the debt ceiling had been taken hostage was in the 1990s, so it wasn't really, you know, kind of front of mind for folks. Right, we've but now seen this. But Libby,
1: isn't that the problem? Because we've seen the movie so many times, and we know how the movie ends— the pressure, the pressure isn't there. So, right, right. The, the Congress, Washington can't look at the market and go, oh, we got to do something now because the market's not telling them that. Do you see what I mean?
2: No, no. I, I, no, I, I, I know. You're, I see your point. But I also, you know, you just, just the reality here is that a lot of these members on the Republican side are going to be hearing from donors who are in the financial markets. And should we be getting closer to the X state without a resolution? Even if the market is fine and sort of sanguine about this, Folks, will, members will be hearing from, you know, very important stakeholders of the importance of this. Um, and if it really does look like default is a potential, not only will obviously the markets react, but, you know, the big donors will also be you know, reaching out to, to members. So I know we're not trying to be sanguine about this. We're big participants in the Treasury market. We're fiduciaries, obviously. But I think the fact that we are also treating this default as, um, you, know, you know, in some ways a fait accompli here in January uh, just feels, you know, very, very premature.
5: OK, Libby, we got. I can't take it if it's you're talking about July, right? Uh, you know, the only thing good is we can obsess over this, and by the time we're finished, it'll be warm again outside, and we, <laughs> you know, we'll be playing. Right? I mean, you'll be on, it,
2: but, yes, yeah, we'll be on the
5: beach, yes. Yeah, we'll be So um, I guess that's okay. We, we, you know, we'll we'll pass the time. Wringing our hands about the debt ceiling, and then we'll be at the beach. So we got that. To look well, and then to and they then close the beaches and beaches
2: because they're not yeah, paying Joe, of the national park right. fees. we might then be talking about a government shutdown, which I don't think really is a market event either. That actually, you know, if, if Republicans really want to get concessions from the administration and from Democrats, that's the fight to focus on because that's talking about future spending, and not just yeah. you know authorizing previous spending.
5: Right. I, I wish. What, what was that? the trillion dollar coin? Like if someone loses it and we happen to find it, that'd be cool, right? I mean, that would. Uh, <laughs> if they, if they misplace a penny, it, find if any pick it up. Yeah, trillion dollar coin. We'd blow that if if we started printing trillion dollar coin. We'd go through that like like nothing. I mean, we student loans. We'd just boom. There would
3: be lawsuits that would come from it. There, there would. These are the problems with any of the workarounds that they've talked about. You could sell additional treasuries, but then. What, what would that do to the Treasury market if you're selling things that don't have the support of both sides of the government? There's a lot of workarounds that are not going to seem like great workarounds.
5: All right, Libby, thanks.
0: Next up on Squawk Pod, job cuts in Silicon Valley are piling up, and the haircuts are only just beginning. Gene Munster of Deepwater Asset Management.
4: Simply, these companies added too many people too fast.
6: From their innovative practice facility,
0: You're listening to Squawk Pod.
1: Up and Andrew, Q. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew ross along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. Job cuts in Silicon Valley, they are piling up. And Google's parent company, Alphabet, the latest to reduce its headcount, laying off 12,000 workers. Some tech stocks already seeing a bounce this year with Alphabet up 11%. Amazon and Meta gaining about 16% on the back of it. Here to discuss what the recent cost cuts could mean for tech stocks is Gene Munster, uh, whose Loop Ventures is now deep water Asset Management. Uh, good morning to you, uh, We Hi, heard Andrew. from them. We also heard from Microsoft uh, while they were in Davos uh, having that party with Sting, which turned out to not be such a great look. We were talking about that. And then you got activist investor uh, Elliott Management now this morning uh, in Salesforce's stock. And you can only imagine that that 10 percent headcount reduction could turn into more. What do you think?
4: It's going to turn into more, Andrew, highly likely. And just to put some parameters around that. I went back and looked at where we were at the end of 2019 in terms of headcount and looked at all big tech. And most of them have grown at the same pace as their revenue, typically 50 to 80%. The one standout company that hasn't had that growth is Apple in terms of their headcount. They grew revenue 52% over that period, but their headcount was only 19%. And I bring up that as a case study, and I think it will be a, a guidebook for other tech companies. And ultimately, when you put this together, what it implies is that there's still another 15 to 20 percent of headcount reductions for these big tech companies in the next three to six months. And I is that, is and you pl- think
1: that's across the you think that's across the board? We were talking about Salesforce earlier. So Salesforce had, and the, the question is, you try to look at what the employment picture was like pre-pandemic. So Salesforce was at 80,000 just a month ago. They're now down to about 71 something, and they were at about 50,000 pre-pandemic. And I don't know if you think that's an, a good barometer for all of this, but do you say that you got you to turn the clock completely backwards?
4: Not entirely backwards. I think that kind of let's again use Apple as an example. That twenty percent benchmark is from where we're at the end of twenty nineteen is a good um, is, is a good indicator. Ultimately, is the, the issue here is that the headcount growth being at the same pace of revenue growth is one piece. The second is that. It is just politically impossible to make the proper changes in the speed that these companies need to do it. The one company that has done that, obviously, Twitter, and uh, that has its own. Uh, well, uh, let's,
1: let's talk about that, though, because and, and I will say, you know, in Davos, one of the things that I heard from so many different tech executives was almost an, uh, a level of awe, um, you know, irrespective of what you think about what's happened at Twitter a level of awe from a management perspective of the, the, the willingness uh, to cut a, as deeply as he has and a sense that at least thus far it's working, meaning that the service hasn't broken down completely.
4: That's uh, in part of my uh, belief. I agree. It is impressive. I think it is uh, freeing for some executives to look at what's happened and he's kind of set that as uh, a plausible approach that you can have significant head cuts. Uh, it is, uh, and ultimately, it keeps coming back to simply these companies added too many people too fast. And in Twitter's case, like you said, the business is still going on. In Apple's case, they're still good, uh, cranking out products. They're still growing revenue at a pace that is out, outpaces what a lot of analysts had thought. So at the end of the day, I think that, um, you know, uh, again, it's, uh, these other companies aren't going to do it. They're, they have uh, a sense of kind of politically how to go about this that Elon Musk doesn't.
3: Gene, let me me just ask, if you have Elliott Management now in its sales force, does that give them cover to do things that they would like to do? Does this put pressure on them? Are they unhappy about Elliott coming in? How would you read that?
4: I think it gives them cover, ultimately uh, probably cover to take a step in the right direction. But even if somebody comes in new, it still is something where you can't go and, and take that full measure that you need to do. Twitter took more than a full measure, but uh, these other tech companies haven't taken enough. and so. But Gene, I,
1: here's the thing that I can't figure out on the Salesforce front, or frankly, um, many of these other job cuts. You, know, you see the big job cut number, and then you see the stock pop marginally. The question really, I think, longer term, especially for these tech stocks, is a, is a multiple story, right? More exactly. than just about anything else. And so how much gain are you going to, from, from an investor perspective, are you going to get simply from the cut alone? Is okay, this a revenue Google. story long term?
4: Uh, so for tech stocks, uh, you need to do both. You need to have stable profitability, preferably growing profit margins, and you still need to be growing. If tech companies aren't growing, they're dying. I mean, it's a simple reality. And for tech investors, they need them both. That's not true for all companies. They need both profitability and revenue growth. In the case so, of so, if you were going to run
1: a screen, if you were going to run a screen on, on tech broadly. Would you run a screen looking at the employment figure based on how they grew employment over the last two years, two plus years, pandemic wise, and, and then expecting a cut and say, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll buy that stock? I mean, how would you do this from an investment perspective?
4: Well, when I do want to quickly go back and answer a question that you asked. is the impact here and just to put the, Google's recent uh, uh, cuts into perspective is that their operating margin goes up by 1% with those recent cuts. That assumes a $300,000 average uh, uh, salary uh, per employee. So I think that uh, these, even though they catch a lot of headlines, it really doesn't move the needle. And so when we think about that screen, what's the screen that we're ultimately looking for? Uh, we're looking for companies with persistent growth at a right valuation. That's, that's ultimately that's our investment framework. But that screen in this case is we don't want we want to look at companies that uh, have an ability to continue to grow revenue and have uh, headcount or headcount is moving in a direction that's up. Call it 30% from where it was pre-pandemic.
1: Gene, before we go, what wh- I, I see you you renamed your company. What's the what's the thought?
4: So uh, that's correct. It's Deepwater Asset Management. And uh, we uh, introduced some new funds and introduced a new brand. And it better reflects who we are, which is we invest both in private and public growth companies driven by tech. And so it's the same team that I've been with for the past 20 years, the core team. We've had some huge additions in the past year. And from my perspective, nothing changes. I'm still.
1: Uh, I don't know. Obsessing. I don't know. I liked Loop. I liked Loop, and I think you could drown in deep water. That's yeah. the thing. It's it, very Andrew, it, it deep be, it, water. It, is it, like, it's you better know. than it's better
5: There's than underwa- underwater. Underwater, underwater investment fund it's, is was you cross that off the list immediately, right? Underwater investment. Uh, it's
4: deep thinking. Deep thinking, deep, Andrew. Deep thinking
5: at deep water. Still,
3: still you, waters run deep.
5: Yeah, underwater is yeah. still available.
0: That does it for the podcast today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from that three-hour TV show right into your ears in a 30 minutes or less format, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow.
1: We are clear. Thanks, guys.